Well, last week we had a snow day, so what does that mean? Two sermons today. I'm actually not joking. We have to catch up. So we don't have time for an intro, so if you could turn your Bibles to Matthew 21, we are going to catch up with Jesus. It's been two weeks since we were in Matthew, and Jesus is the King, and this morning, Jesus the King will provocatively tell us that the kingdom is given to those that give the fruit of repentance, not to those who reject the king. The kingdom is given to those that give the fruit of repentance, not to those who reject its king. And as a reminder, I want to refresh us uh, where we are in the flow of this story. If you recall, Jesus, in the story that Matthew is telling us and reminding us, he is in the last week of his life. He has come into the city of Jerusalem and there has been a party at his entrance, but the city itself is shook. And if you recall, they asked, who is this? Then Jesus, after that, walks into the temple where people worship God and he starts clearing it out because the people in charge, the religious leaders, were taking advantage of people who were coming to worship. And when he returns, the re religious leaders approach him while he's teaching and they say, by what authority do you do these things? That's what we were talking about two weeks ago. And if you recall, he turns the question on them. He says, sure, I will answer that question. If you answer this question, from where did the baptism of John come? Was it from heaven or was it from man? He says, you remember John, my cousin, and we remember John. John is the one that people recognized as a prophet. That's a messenger for God. The one who was a forerunner for Jesus, who came proclaiming the kingdom. John's the one who baptized Jesus, right? And the religious leaders, they knew Jesus and they didn't like the question. And so they practiced some game theory. They said, okay, if we say heaven, Jesus says, then why didn't you listen to him? And if they say man, the crowd would say, what are you talking about? He was clearly from heaven. So they don't like either option. So they say, oh, oh we don't know. Who could say? Cowards. And Jesus turns that and says, okay, then I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority. But now, right on the heels of that exchange, Jesus is going to turn up the volume. If, if you have been with us for a while going through Matthew, you know that sometimes he would get an answer to a question, then he'd take an opportunity to leave and not deal with it anymore because he didn't want to get in these arguments with the religious leaders. But not anymore. Not in the last week of his life. Maybe earlier he would have, but now he's going to double down as though to say, let's talk about authority. I'm not going to be coy anymore. You didn't answer the question, so I I'm going to press you. And he does it with a parable. In the first parable, he says, emphasizes repentance to authority. This is in verse 28 of chapter 21. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. This is a little interesting story, is it not? A boy, and, bo and I really want to know 
what the tone of Jesus' voice is. When he says, what do you think? Put this one on for size. You want to talk about authority? What do you think about this? A father with authority, let's deal with this. And in the story, Jesus tells this father has a vineyard, and the father does something normal for a father who has a vineyard, something normal that we would expect him to do. He talks to his sons and tells them to go work in the vineyard today. He is the dad. They are the sons. It is his vineyard. They live there. This is an appropriate and reasonable request. And what does the first son say? I will not. I'm going to let the parents in the room calm down for a moment because I know that's a triggering phrase from a son or any kid, really. And that's a hard one when you you hear that. They say, I will not. The immediate, abrupt rejection of authority. But then what happens? This son who obviously rejected, what happens next? The son changed his mind. He was going one way, doing one thing, and he turned around. He changed direction. This is a soft way of saying he repented. And the father goes to the second son and tells him the same thing, and the son says, I go, sir. Oh, what respect. What a great response. The compliant son. This is the kind of response you want. This is the kind of response that makes a parent feel good. But what does he do? He doesn't go. He's given lip service and then done nothing. He has recognized the authority of his dad and even given respect with his lips. I go, sir, wow, how respectful, and then does nothing. And now Jesus puts it back on the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. In verse 31, he says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. He says, which one does the will of the Father? And they say, the first, and of course they are right. The first one said the wrong thing and then changed his mind and did what the father asked. And Jesus responds in a shocking way. He says, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. He says, yes, you are right. The son who said defiantly, I will not, but then turned around, he was the obedient one. And just like him, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And who are these people he's talking about? Especially in comparison to the religious leaders he's talking about. The tax collectors are those who have betrayed their people in order to collect taxes for the occupying Roman Empire. They are hated. They are politically treacherous. Friends and family feel betrayed by them. They are working for the other side. They are working for the bad guys. And prostitutes selling themselves for money, the sexually deviant. So hear this, religious ones. The political, the politically treacherous and the sexually deviant are getting into the kingdom of God before you. Why? Because they change their mind. 
Because the tax collectors and the prostitutes, when they heard John, the messenger of the king, the forerunner of the coming of the kingdom, they heard him proclaiming the way of righteousness, the way of the right, and the way of the kingdom, and they listened to him. They turned around. They were the ones that originally said, I will not, and then they turned around. They heard John, and they believed, and they obeyed. They went from vocal disobedience to obedience, and that is why they get the kingdom, because they turned around, because they repented. And what does that mean for the Pharisees and the chief priests? If the tax collectors and the prostitutes are the first son, the one that gets into the kingdom first, what does that make the Pharisees? They're the second son, right? They are the ones that are vocally obedient but internally disobedient. They pay lip service. They say the right thing and never back it up with action. They heard John as well and they did not change their minds and believe him. They heard John proclaim the coming of the kingdom. They heard John announce the arrival of its king, Jesus, and they never changed their minds. The second son does the lip service thing. The potentially culturally acceptable thing to say the one thing but have no intention of actually submitting to the authority. To say, sure, Dad, and then go crash on the couch. And now it's as though to say, I'll take Jesus, I just don't intend to submit to him. Yeah, I'm with Jesus, I'm just not gonna do anything he wants. And last time we heard Jesus talking, he was saying, tell me where John gets his authority. And they, the the Pharisees and the chief priests, they pretend they don't know. They feign ignorance and say, we don't know. And now he presses it. John was pointing to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven as he said it before. John's authority came from God because he was a messenger of the coming kingdom and you didn't listen. You didn't believe. You didn't change your mind and decide to follow the instructions of the kingdom. An entrance into the kingdom of God is not determined by who talks well, who says the right thing. It is determined by who changes their mind about the king. Entrance into the kingdom comes from turning around, from repenting, from submitting yourself to the king, from bending the knee. And Jesus has turned the tables and is being incredibly provocative. You religious leaders, who gets into the kingdom first? Who gets close to God first? The prostitutes are in before you. The tax collectors are in before you. Not because of them, but because of their response to the king. And you religious ones who propose to tell the things of God, you saw them repent, you saw them turn to the kingdom, to the king, and yet you still fail to change your mind. Now you're at the back of the line. And friends, the question is for us as well, which son are you? Jesus is astounding in his pressing to us and to them. It's incredible. And you think, okay, he's probably done, right? We can be done. Now he can walk away, he dealt with it, he can move on. Nope, he does a second parable. And this time he emphasizes the rejection of authority. This is in verse 33. He says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it 
and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. He says here another parable. I kind of picture Jesus like a rhetorical boxer keeping his verbal opponent up against the ropes and keeping him propped up so he can keep landing blows. He just finishes this one and says, you're at the back of the line. Then he says, hear another parable. I'm not done. This is, and he says, there is a master of a house. He has money. He has capital. He has everything he needs to plant a vineyard. And he does everything necessary to set it up so it can have a successful harvest. He puts a fence around it so intruders and creatures are kept out. He digs a wine press for the grapes that will surely arrive when the harvest comes so they can be pressed for juice to make the wine. The tower is built maybe to store the fruit or to serve as a vantage point to look out and make sure no one is coming to take the vineyard. And when all is ready, when all is set up, when everything he owns is ready to go, he leases it out to tenants, to tenant farmers, to people who would keep the vineyard and tend to it, and in return, they would give a portion of the fruit back to the owner when it is ready. And the master leaves. The owner of everything we just talked about in the story goes to leave and go to another country. And then the seasons begin to change and summer turns to fall and it's about time for harvest and he knows, ah, the leaves are changing. It's time to send my servants to go get my fruit. So he sends the servants to get it. And as is typical in Matthew, we've done this time and time again. I don't know how many times I've mentioned this. Matthew is pulling together a bunch of threads from Scripture constantly. From other parts of this book, from this Bible, Jesus is familiar with its entirety, and he knows to whom he's talking. He's talking to religious leaders who know their Bibles. And what would they catch? This story echoes the picture of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. When God describes Israel as a vineyard, in Isaiah 5, he says, Let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. It echoes it, right? But it yielded wild grapes. And then verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus begins to tell this story, and he is echoing Isaiah. God is a master who had a vineyard, and all was there that was needed for it to produce fruit. And the expected fruit is justice and righteousness. But what happened instead? Wild grapes, the wrong fruit showed up. Not the cultivated fruit, but the wild and unwieldy. Not justice and righteousness, but bloodshed and outcry. And in Isaiah, this is a woe to the house of Israel. The vineyard is there, and the expected result should be justice and and righteousness. Justice is right relationship with my neighbor. Uh, righteousness is right relationship with God and doing justice and righteousness is doing the action that aligns with those right relationships. And the Pharisees know their Bibles. They know their scrolls. And when he said there was a master who planted a vineyard, pictures are firing off in their mind about the vineyard in Isaiah. 
He says, here another parable. There's a master who plants a vineyard. And they're thinking. And they know the story. But again, Jesus turns the tables. We don't have wild grapes in Jesus' story. We have tenants. A vineyard is made and given to tenants to take care of it and bring the fruit. If the vineyard is Israel, the people of God, who would the tenants be? The religious leaders. The very chief priests and Pharisees he's talking to. So what do the tenants do when the master comes looking for the fruit? Jesus continues the narrative. He says, in the tenants, when the servants came, the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. The master sends his servants to bring his message. Hey, it's time for the fruit that the master expects, and the unthinkable happens. They beat a servant. They kill a servant. They stone a servant, literally pummeling him with rocks. This is just unthinkable. This is like you taking your money and saying, I'm going to build a house so that people can live in it and I'm gonna set it all up so they're ready to live in this house and I'm gonna rent it out to these people. And then when it's time to collect your first month's rent, you send, hey, hey friend, can you go pick up the rent check from the house that I'm renting out? Of course. And then you get a phone call and they say, they killed your friend. He was just there to pick up the rent check and they killed your friend. What? It's my house. What, what are you doing? And what does the master do? Again, the master sends more servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. This is outrageous. And this is the story of the vineyard all the way back to Isaiah. This is the story of the people of God. God has been expecting justice and righteousness and he has sent his servants. His servants have been the prophets from long ago to give the message. We need the fruit. God wants to see justice and righteousness and how did they respond? They beat the prophets. They hurt the prophets. They killed the prophets. And Jesus continues in this story, he says, finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. The owner of all the stuff decides to send his son saying, they will respect my son. Now I want the weight of this to land with all of you so you can feel it. Jesus has taken this picture of Israel as a vineyard, ramped up the story. Now there are tenants, the religious leaders that he's talking to. And as he tells the story, the master, the owner of all the vineyard and all the buildings and everything in it, the master has a son. And in the story, Jesus is telling, who is the son? Jesus. And the master sends the son to the tenant saying, they will respect my son. And Jesus is telling the story right in front of the face of the religious leaders, right to the tenants. He is in effect saying, the master sent the son to you. You should respect the son. You want to question his authority. You should respect 
the Son, the one standing right in front of you. And Jesus continues, But when the tenants saw the Son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They killed him. The audacity, the gall, the stupidity. They see the son being sent from a long way off and they say, oh, that's the son. The owner of all the stuff sent his son. If we kill him, we can have everything. This is ridiculous and tragic and rebellious to the utmost. And this is, this is wild that Jesus is telling this story. This is the last week of the life of Jesus. This is the week that eventually the Pharisees deliver him over to be crucified. And he is staring them down and laying it all out for them. The vineyard is here. God expects the fruit of justice and righteousness and yet the tenants You guys, don't give the fruit. And when given messenger after messenger after messenger, they maim and they kill and they destroy. John, the last messenger, the one you won't answer the question about, he's already been decapitated. He's dead. And now the son, the son stands before them telling the story of the tenants killing the son of the owner of the vineyard. And then he asked them the question, when therefore, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they, the religious leaders, said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And what will the owner do? What will the master do to the tenants? And the Pharisees and the chief priests answer with surprising intensity. Put those wretches to a miserable death. The language here in the original is something along the lines of he will bring the bad ones to a bad end or the evil ones to an evil death. It just compounds. The tenants will be destroyed and the vineyard will be given to other tenants, other people who will keep the vineyard and give the fruit as is to be expected. And it's astounding. There's no question from the Pharisees. They don't hem and haw and, ah, I don't know, what, what would he do? It's astounding. They are emphatic. The tenants die and you need new tenants. Because the relationship of master to tenant is obvious and the treachery, the treachery should be met with justice. And the vineyard is for fruit and you need tenants that will give you the fruit. The status of the vineyard needs to change. The keeping of the vineyard will be modified. In order for justice and righteousness to be delivered, the current tenants have to go and new ones go in its place. And Jesus has woven this story together, such a preposterous story that the Pharisees and chief priests have no other options, no other answers but to proclaim the need for justice and deep change. They know 
If you reject the master, you will be destroyed. And Jesus responds to their answer. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He says, Have you never read the scriptures? Again, he props them up and hits them again. He responds to the religious leaders. These are the pastors and the teachers, the Bible teachers of their day. Have you not read in your Bibles? And then he quotes Psalm 118. That is the same psalm they echoed outside Jerusalem when he came riding on a donkey. When they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, that was from Psalm 118. And right before it says, save us or Hosanna, it says in verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And Jesus ties into the same theme of rejection. The tenants reject the sun. The builders reject a stone. But the one rejected becomes what you wouldn't expect because the Lord does something marvelous. The one thrown in the trash heap, the one thrown in the reject pile is lifted up into the place of prominence. Either the stone on which all other stones are founded or the stone that is the pinnacle. And the psalm reminds us, and the singers already shouted outside Jerusalem when Jesus entered the city that this is a stone of salvation. The stone that was rejected becomes the means of salvation and the reason to rejoice. The stone that was rejected becomes the stone on which a great house is built. And Jesus is pressing them. Don't you read your Bibles, religious ones? And the talk of the stone is a theme in all of Scripture. After Matthew, there's many references in the New Testament, and you can look at those. But before Matthew was writing, there's many references in the Old Testament. It's a theme of Scripture, this stone. There's a stone in Daniel. We won't turn there. But that stone in Daniel knocks down all other kingdoms, even the great empire of Rome. And it says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Sound familiar? Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and break them to an end. It shall stand forever. And there is the stone in Isaiah. Just three chapters after Isaiah talks about the vineyard, he talks about the stone. This is in Isaiah 8, verse 11. He says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken." The Lord is a stone, a sanctuary, a refuge. The stone is a stone of saving and marvelous work, but if you reject the stone, 
it is a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. You either rejoice in the stone or you stumble on the stone. There are no other options. You either bring the fruit to the master or you reject the son. You either change your mind and listen to the father or reject. But there is no avoiding the stone. Many will stumble on the stone. And the Pharisees, those who know their Bibles and know all these references, are being asked by Jesus, asked by the stone, asked by the Son, don't you know that the stone is rejected and becomes the cornerstone? Don't you know that the Son that you reject becomes the stone of salvation? And he says, because of this rejection... He says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And this is powerful and provocative again because you rejected the stone and the son and the father, you don't get the kingdom. You religious leaders who would tell others how to follow God, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. And Jesus gives them their words right back to them. The kingdom will be given to a people who will produce its fruit. And what is that fruit? It's the fruit of repentance. That changing your mind about the king. All you rebels who have said, I will not, you can give the fruit of repentance. The fruit of turning around and deciding to go work in the vineyard when you said, I will not. The fruit of the kingdom is submission the king, living with eyes on what Jesus would have me do. Try to fix it, be fine. Living with eyes on what Jesus would have me do, obeying the king, and the fruit of the kingdom is already what it was said in Isaiah, it's justice, loving your neighbor as yourself, all your neighbors, you don't get to be exclusive, and righteousness, loving the Lord your God. The kingdom will be given to those who have the fruit of the kingdom, the submission to the king. And we know the fruit, but who is this people? It's not an ethnic people. It's not an exclusive people. It is a new people defined by their connection to the king. And this people includes all sorts of people who we would never expect to be included. The politically treacherous and the sexually deviant, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes, the Gentiles, and the rebels, the ones who were never connected to the people of God until a messenger showed up and said, the king is this way, and they changed their mind. And there are many of you in this room who have heard a proclamation of the king, and you changed your mind. And that is the new people in the vineyard a people defined by their submission to the king and characterized by their fruit. One commentator said, this is a new discipleship community, the community that Jesus would commission at the end of this book, commission us to grow when he says, go make disciples. The vineyard is filled with a new people. The kingdom is filled with a new people. It is filled by each of you who bend the knee to the king the stone, the cornerstone, because you can't get around the stone. Jesus continues, and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
Picture again the stone that crushes the lesser kingdoms. Picture the stone of stumbling. You can't avoid the stone. If you don't submit to the stone, you still have to deal with the stone, and we cannot hold up to the stone. We're fragile. I read from an ancient piece of literature this week. It said, if a stone falls on a pot, woe to the pot. If a pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. Right? It doesn't matter if the pot is going this way or the pot is going that way. If the pot falls on the stone, the stone does not yield for the pot. Right? The stone is always a problem for the pot. And just a couple days ago, I was pulling a coffee mug out of our cabinet and a teacup came out of the cabinet toward the counter and toward the floor. Apparently, I was in preparing for this sermon And in midair, I thought, there goes the teacup. It's doomed. Because the teacup cannot break the countertop or the floor. The floor does not yield for the teacup, and there is no middle way here. Jesus is so provocative here. He's pressing hard here. If you come up to the stone, you can recognize it as the cornerstone and rejoice, the rock of salvation, or you reject and it will crush you. You cannot sidestep something of such magnitude. It is unreasonable to expect that an object coming against the stone will cause the stone to break. And write to the Pharisees and the chief priests, it's as if he's asking, what do you do with the stone? Do you rejoice or reject? Do you rejoice or reject? And Matthew tells us, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They knew. They knew Jesus is talking about us. And they have set their sights on Jesus. They seek to arrest him, and the only thing that stops them in this moment is that the crowd around them thinks, this guy's a prophet. And now is not the most opportune time to press the rejection of Jesus. And this is the tragic piece. They are setting themselves in rejection to Jesus. The cornerstone and the sun is before them, and their own words doom them. They hear the parables and reject the teller of the parables and in the process fulfill the parables. They write the ending to the story. This is tragedy. And you've heard the same stories. And the same choice is before you. What do you do with Jesus? Jesus is pressing. Jesus is provocative. This is the week of his death. He's no longer avoiding the issue. He is the stone, and you have to deal with the stone. You will either rejoice or it will crush you. He is the son. Do you join in killing him or recognize his authority? His words are the words of the kingdom. Do you pay them lip service but with your actions reject, or do you change your mind and take the path to the vineyard and bear the fruit of the kingdom? 
to say, I'll take Jesus as long as I don't need to submit is not an option. The fruit of the vineyard is expected. The way of the king is expected. Justice and righteousness must flow from the wine press. You can repent or you can reject. You can submit or attempt to supplant. And the Pharisees will choose the path of disobedience and ultimately kill Jesus. But the Father raised him from the dead and he became the cornerstone. And if you come against him, you will break. How will you respond to Jesus? Repentance, submission, the fruit of justice and righteousness, or rejection and death. Jesus is exceedingly patient with us. He is kind to give us opportunity after opportunity, story after story after story, even to these who were set to reject him. He pressed and pressed and pressed. But his forbearance is not forever. You must deal with Jesus. He is the king and his is the eternal kingdom. And the kingdom is given those who give the fruit of repentance, not to those who reject its king. How will you respond to the king? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the stone and the son and the king. There is not a middle way in response to you. You have made it clear Rejection or repentance are the only options. Do not allow us to think we can pay lip service and live life without submitting to you. Draw us to you as the one who saves and give us reason to rejoice. Holy Spirit, allow none of us in this room this morning to leave thinking we can do something other than reject or rejoice in Jesus. Press us to respond and make the ramifications clear the tragedy of rejection, and the joy of submission. And may we recognize that we all start as rebels, but you bring the fruit of repentance to those we would least expect. Fill our hearts with gratitude for our connection to Jesus and use these songs to give words to our gratitude. Amen.